Now, I've got a question here that uh, some people of a certain age will almost certainly know uh, the answer to, perhaps people of a younger age as well. Um, do you know who the best-selling band of all time is? Best-selling band of all time across the world. Wow, I thought this was... What's that there? Beatles is correct. Yeah, it's the Beatles. It wasn't a trick question. It was... Uh, Beatles is the, uh, uh, the best-selling band of all time. I double check. I checked it on Wikipedia, so you've got to be careful having you checking on, on Wikipedia. But um, but I want you to imagine for a second this morning that the Beatles had appeared a hundred years before they actually did. If they'd appeared in the 1860s rather than the 1960s, I wonder what the reaction of the world would have been. Would twist and shout and get back and I am the Walrus um, have been hits in Victorian Britain? I think it's unlikely, isn't it? They wouldn't really have been very well accepted. Or what if the Beatles hadn't come from Liverpool, uh, but instead had come out of Leningrad? Would they have been such a huge hit as they were? Maybe they'd got away with back in the USSR, but most of their other songs probably wouldn't have been that popular. You see, there's such a thing, isn't there, as the wrong audience. With the Beatles, you've got great music, but if they've got the wrong audience, then it would have all gone wrong. And I want to suggest this morning, as we look at these parables, the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin, that often we have the right story with these ones, but we pick the wrong audience. You see, we think that these parables are actually aimed at the lost in the story, when actually they're aimed the other way. These parables, you see, are not so much aimed as the, at the sinners, as it calls it in the passage, but they're aimed at the Pharisees. Do you see that there in verse 1? Now the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. See, actually he's talking here to the Pharisees. So in other words, as we read this, we're not to read it as evangelistic passages as we would normally read them. Now there are evangelistic applications, don't get me wrong, and not that it's wrong to use them in that way, because every passage has evangelistic applications as well. But the shoe we're supposed to put ourselves in is not the lost sheep, and it's not the lost coin. We're to put ourselves in the shoes of the sheep who stayed put, or of the coins that were never lost. We're to put ourselves in the shoes of those who were invited to rejoice at finding the lost. And this will come into even sharper focus next week when we look at the lost son or sons. So the questions that we're going to be asking ourselves this morning aren't so much about our lostness, but about what our attitude is to God's treatment of those people. What is our attitude to God's free forgiveness of others? What is our attitude to the immoral, unrespectable parts of the world that God wants to bring into his church, into our church? The Pharisees, you see, were annoyed with Jesus welcoming sinners. He even breaks bread with them, he eats with them, doesn't he? And many of us this morning will say this, well, we know that. We know that they had a problem with Jesus uh, breaking bread with sinners, but in the end, we're all sinners, aren't we? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, yes, we are. We are all sinners. But do you see that actually they understand it meaning something different? The sinners in our passage read scum, if you like. 
In our society, there'd be the people like the drug dealers. People who are addicted to uh, uh, substances. People who are involved in prostitution, paedophiles, gang leaders. And as we read this, we need to think, would we welcome them on a Sunday? Would we rejoice in people like this, coming to believe the gospel? And I think many of us would say yes in theory, but a bit more hesitant in practice. I mean, would we be happy as a church with needles outside the church building? Pregnancies amongst us where we don't know who the father is. A reputation as a church being full of disreputable disreputable people. Not the sort of church that you want to send your kids to. Would we get someone with needle marks on their arms or tattoos on their face, welcoming at the door, leading meetings, preaching? And what about people who haven't done something so visual, but maybe people who've hurt us? How do we feel about God forgiving them? Do we want them to get saved? Or do we deep down wish that they get judged? So it's a bit more complicated than we'd like to think as we come to this passage. And it's something that the Pharisees couldn't really get their head around. See, having their respectable middle-class religion spoiled by filthy vagrants who belonged in the gutter, not in the synagogue, having a Messiah who would rather spend his time and energy with this scum rather than with the civilised religious people, well, we've got a problem there, haven't we? So Jesus tells them three stories, and we're going to look at the first two this morning. Uh, Firstly, we'll look at the stories. The stories, we've got sheep and shrapnel, really. Um, I'll read, um, I'll read just the first one, uh, just to remind us what we're looking at. Now, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbours, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, that's the story of the lost sheep. When you read the story of the lost coin, it reads quite similar, doesn't it? So you've got some something precious that was lost. The owner then looks for it, and he, he diligently looks for it. That's what it, the word that it uses, really, in, in both these uh, parts. Um, it's not man-looking, uh, as they used to say in my old office. I don't know if you're familiar with the concept. Um, so I used to, you work in an office and they say, could you find the, the hole punch? And you'd go to the cupboard and you'd have a look inside and can't find it. They say, did you look or did you man look? Uh, man looking is not, not really looking very hard. Uh, but uh, no, they don't just man look, they really look. And then they find it, don't they? They say, don't they, it's always the last place that you look. And that's a good thing, isn't it? Because if you carry on looking once you found it, that would be very strange. But they find it, don't they? And then the owner invites his friends around to celebrate. He throws a party. That might seem a bit excessive over finding a coin or finding a sheep. But we're British, aren't we? You know, we, we don't even like to celebrate our own birthdays, do we? We, we? we tend to sort of shy away from those things. There aren't so many languages in the world that you can translate low-key uh, into, are there? But we, like, we don't like to sort of put it out there, do we? But these two stories seem to have basically the same plot. That's it, isn't it? They look for it, they find it, and they celebrate afterwards. So why are there two stories with the same plot? Well, there are differences, aren't there, between the two stories. We've got one where we've got a hundred sheep, and then the other one where you've only got ten. Now, that's lots of sheep. If you imagine, that would just be somebody quite rich 
uh, having all those sheep, but not so many coins. Uh, And actually for that woman, that would have made them very precious, wouldn't it? So it's not about how many are there, really, because there are different numbers. It's about how many are, are lost. That's the thing that binds those two together with the numbers. Both of them have lost one. It's interesting, isn't it, with the, the atrocities that we've had recently, the, with the tower and with the terrorist incidents. People don't talk about how many are safe. They talk about how many are lost, don't they? Because that's what any sensible person cares about. How many actually are, are, are lost? How many haven't made it? Well, here it's just one out of a hundred or just one out of ten. But it's still one. It's still something precious. There's a sheep. And there's a coin. That's another difference. A sheep, an animal with a bit of a will. An animal that's able to get itself lost. An animal that in many ways you can hold responsible for getting lost. You know, you could say silly sheep for getting lost. And that might emphasise the responsibility that we have. The Bible does talk about us like sheep that go astray. We sang about it earlier. But on the flip side of that, you get a coin. It's a passive object. Lost for who knows what reason. The fact of the matter is, though, that it's lost. A coin has no chance of finding its way back into your wallet, has it, or your purse, unless you actually go and seek it and find it. And that might emphasise the helplessness that we're in, perhaps more than a sheep. Coins can't do anything to get themselves back, they have to be found. And then we have a man, and we have a woman. Do you notice that in the two stories? There's no sexism here. Uh, Actually, this is affecting both men and women. But all these differences go to show the universality of this story. It applies to everything precious that's lost and found, whether it's a sheep or a coin or or a suitcase. I don't know if you know that about uh, a year ago, about this time last year actually, I I, I lost my suitcase uh, on a train in London. I've only been to London about four times, it's really put me off going to London ever again. Um, But uh, it's one of those things where I got off the train but left my, my case on there. And in it was my laptop, which is, well, this sort of spoils the story, doesn't it? My laptop, <laughs> uh, my iPad, um, I'd got, a, I'd, I'd been to a Christian conference and I'd got loads of books and I'd stuffed them all in my case. And, uh, I really thought I was never gonna see it again. You know, with, with, with really important things inside it. And I consigned myself to never seeing it again. And then I, you know, did all the sort of things you're supposed to do, phoning the railway company and all those sorts of things. And I just consigned myself to getting a new laptop. And then out of the blue, I got this email saying, we've, we've found your case. Um, we'll be sending it to you. You need to organise delivery. My boys still, whenever they see a UPS truck, uh, they're like, that's what brought your case when you lost it in London. Um, they still remember it even now. But part of it was because I was so happy. When I actually, when the case came through the door... I thought I was never going to see it again. Like, a year's worth of work that I hadn't backed up was on my laptop. So I was so happy. And that's the point of this story. That's where all these stories go. When you find something precious that's lost, you celebrate. You're happy. And that brings us, really, to the significance of these stories. (coughs) The significance. Because that's his big point. There are secondary applications you can take from this which are valid. You could look at the lostness of humanity. You know, we all like sheep have gone astray. We're helpless and can't help ourselves. That's true. But it's not the main point that he's getting at. You could look at this in terms of the sovereignty of God in salvation. 
God is the one that's looking. God is the one that's seeking. It's not man seeking God, but God seeking man. And that's true as well, but it's not his main point. His main point is aimed squarely at the Pharisees. And his point to them is when something precious is lost, and then you find it, you rejoice. The application that he wants them to see is joy at the salvation of the lost. Now, I hope you've sort of got this in a little way, that when people do come to Christ, when people become Christians, that makes you happy. I hope you say, of course, because we're not Pharisees. But as I said a couple of weeks ago, that we share a lot of common attributes with the Pharisees. And actually, in all of us, there's a little Pharisee inside. And evangelicals are even more prone to that, I think, than some of the other errors in the Bible. We're prone to having this Pharisee that comes out every so often. And sometimes there are reasons why why we don't rejoice. There are reasons why the Pharisees don't rejoice. I want to suggest there are two big reasons why the Pharisees don't rejoice that we can be in danger of too. The first one is that they don't really believe the gospel. And the second one is that they're judgmental of those who live and sin in different ways to them. They don't believe the gospel because the gospel says that we're all sinners. All of us fall short in many different ways. All of us are included in that category. The Pharisees don't see that. They see themselves as set apart. They see themselves as different. And they're judgmental. But it's really a class and a pride issue here. You see, they're judgmental on sins that they don't commit and lacks on the ones that they do. Does that sound familiar? They're judgmental about sins they don't commit and lacks on the ones that they do. Are we prone to that as Christians? You know, getting tipsy on a, a little bit of red wine, talking about how shocking it is that someone's a smoker. Gossiping about how so-and-so wastes all his money on gadgets, not realising that we're gossiping. There are some questions that we can ask ourselves to see if we have this little Pharisee inside of us. If you're more suspect about the salvation of a shoplifter than someone who takes office stationery from work, then you might be a Pharisee. That's the sort of thing they would do. If you're more judgmental of a Christian who's addicted to nicotine than a Christian who's addicted to caffeine, that might be you, you might be a Pharisee. If you expect to find Christians in Waitrose but not in Aldi, (laughs) true, you might be a Pharisee. Would you make that comment? Oh, I didn't expect to see you here. If you pray for someone to come to Christ in public, but never in private, then you might be a Pharisee. If you're more excited by the thought of an airline pilot becoming a Christian than an asylum seeker becoming a Christian, you might be a Pharisee. And if you think you don't struggle in any of these areas, but actually you're better than all this, then you might be a Pharisee. (laughs) Because all of us struggle over issues like this. We don't often talk about it, but we do. We think, why should the lost sheep get all the attention? We were here the whole time. You should be rebuking the sheep for getting lost in the first place. Why are we being easier on the tearaways? If I did that in church, I'd be in so much trouble. And then there's also issues, with, like I say, with people who have hurt us. And we think it's okay not to want them to be saved or or to, to doubt their salvation or... 
I was speaking with someone this week who um, is counselling someone who uh, was a, abused at a church. And um, the difficulty that they're having is, is saying, well, this person's a Christian that's abused me. And they're going to get away with it. They're not going to face judgment. That doesn't seem fair. Why should they get the same deal that I do when they've been so cruel to me? It's hard, isn't it? There are difficulties in these things. There are ways that we can sometimes act like the Pharisees and forget that we're all in the same boat. But instead, we need to turn our judgmentalism into joy. And we do that by the flip side of what we've just been talking about. We do that by believing the gospel. Now you want to say, well, we believe the gospel, don't we? But it's, it's like the man says in the gospel, isn't it? Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We all need to believe it more. We do believe the gospel, if we're Christians here this morning, but we need help to believe it more. We need to believe that Jesus can save anyone from any background, however lost, however unlike us. We need help to believe that. We need help to believe that at the foot of the cross we stand equal. There is no boasting, no hierarchies, nobody above anybody else. We need help to believe that. We believe anyone can be forgiven anything, don't we? But even when they're a Christian, even when they're supposed to be different, even when they've hurt us, we still need to forgive them. We still need to love them. We need to believe the gospel because all of us are in the same boat. All of us are forgiven those things. And the second way we turn our judgmentalism into joy is by recognising that people sin in different ways. But all of us have the same disease. People sin in different ways, but all of us have the same disease. In the end, all of us are in the same boat, aren't we? But the Pharisees didn't believe that. They believed that they were better. But as Christians, we know that we're not. And our own weaknesses should make us sympathetic to each other's weaknesses. But the problem with the Pharisees is they wouldn't even admit their own weaknesses. So to keep up that facade, they had to be judgmental of other people. Because they couldn't let people think that they possibly struggled with the same things. We need to remember, don't we, as people say, that whenever you point one finger at somebody, you've got four fingers pointing back at yourself. So we need to be loving to one another, aware that we are all weak, that we all make mistakes. But this is not the same as ignoring sin. That's not what I'm asking us to do. This is not what this parable is to do, asking us to do this morning. Sin is a destructive cancer that kills and maims. There are many different kinds, but all are destructive. And there, but there is a difference in the way that Jesus responds to sufferers of that disease than the Pharisees. How did Jesus treat those who knew that they were sick? Well, he sought and saved them, didn't he? He went after them. He spent time with them. That's what he's being criticised for here. He sought and saved them. The Pharisees, though, they marginalised and mocked them. They prayed things like, I thank you, God, that I am not so-and-so. I wonder which is the closest way to the way that we'd respond. But why should we do this? We're told there in verses 7 and 10. Just have a look with me again at 7 and 10. Just so I tell you, there is more joy in heaven 
over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And then verse 10, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Why are we to do this? Why are we to uh, not be judgmental, but be joyful over the salvation of sinners? Well, because that's what God does. Do you notice that the joy, the rejoicing, is in the presence of the angels? It's before the angels. It's not the angels that are rejoicing. That's the way I've always read this. You know, the angels have a party. But the rejoicing is before the angels. It's God who's rejoicing, actually, here in heaven. It's the whole of heaven, if you like, rather than just the angels. It's not that God as though sort of sat there stoically while the angels rejoice. God is rejoicing. It's saying, Rick, God is happy every time somebody becomes a Christian. So it means that rejoicing in these circumstances where people come to Christ is not just a good thing to do, it's the godly thing to do. It's being like our Heavenly Father. I don't know about you, I don't think about rejoicing in the same breath as godliness. I tend to think of godliness as being quite dour. But here godliness is rejoicing at the right things, isn't it? Godliness is just as much a matter of rejoicing at the right things than being angry at the wrong things. So this is what makes God happy. So it should make us happy too. But what do you need to do here if you're lost? Perhaps you're here this morning and you're thinking, well, this is all well and good. I know a lot of Christians who are like this. This isn't where I am. Well, there are answers here too as well. Do you see what, again, in verse 7 and 10? Just so I tell you, there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Just so I tell you, there is more joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Actually, the verses give us the answer, don't they? What's required of you this morning, if you, if you realise that you're not in that place, is repentance. Now, next week is going to focus on that more. Uh, as we look at the lost son who who turns around and comes back. But for now, it's enough to say that it's a change of mind that leads to a change of direction. It's the sheep coming back. It's the coin jumping back into the pocket. And you want to say, well, hang on, didn't we just say those things are impossible? And in our story, wasn't it God doing those things? Well, that's also the case with our salvation, isn't it? It's impossible. But God works in our hearts. God grants us repentance. He brings us home. He changes our minds. As the Beatles wrote, he gets us back, get back to where we once belonged. He does it by his spirit, through his word. And God always gets his audience right. He speaks to us as individuals in our heart through his spirit, by the word. He always has the right audience. So we need to rejoice, don't we, in our own salvation that God has done that for us, but also in the salvation of others. 